Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, this week, we are going to have a guest that's going to rock you. And the reason being, he has one of the number one podcasts in the world in leadership. So I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. And so if you're interested in leadership and just the whole dynamics of that and how important authenticity is and how to create loyalty, then you're going to learn about that today. So welcome my guest, Dove Barron to the show. Dove, great to have you on. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to share and uh, do whatever I can to serve the audience. Well, Dove, here you are. You're this number one podcast host for Fortune 500 leaders, and you have all these books that are out, and we'll talk about them during the show. But my listeners, we really want to hear your stories. Where were you born? What's sort of your childhood history? You know, sort of take us up to that part, and then we'll just kind of continue from there. So your background and in, in sort of your family of origin. Mm-hmm. As you can probably already tell from listening to me, I have a labradoodle accent, which means it's kind of muddled. Um, I live uh, about, I guess, about 15 minutes, maybe an hour away from Ken. Um, I'm in downtown Vancouver, but I came here from Australia, where I lived for about seven or eight years. Before that, I was in Asia and Indonesia. Before that, I lived in East Coast Canada for one year. Then I was, I was in France and Italy before that, and I was born in the U.K., so my accent's kind of muddled, and that's why when people don't know where I'm from. So I'm interrupting you, Deb. Do you know where you're from? Um, no, yeah, I do now. I, my, my wife made me go get my Canadian citizenship because it was too much of a pain in the ass at the border. Well, I, I get that. They, don't, they say, look, we're a little confused here. You're doing a little bit too much traveling for us. Well, that's great. Just for curiosity, what part of Australia were you living in? I lived in Perth, Western Australia. Oh, I was. Western I side. spoke all over Australia, but I was based in Perth. Okay, great. So you're you were born in the UK. Yeah. So where did this uh, all this travel come from? Well, I was born in the UK in in abject poverty, um, and always was far more motivated, far more uh, ambitious than the people around me, and was a bit of an odd kid, and had this uh, very deep interest in the yeah. metaphysical even as a child. And that, that was around, uh, I was particularly very interested in things that were not traditional thinking. I was interested in Kabbalah. I was interested, uh, uh, which is uh, Hebrew or religious philosophy for Judaism. That got me interested in prana yoga um, and a bunch of other things. And so the traveling was induced out of this desire to go and study these different religious philosophies. Wow. And where do you think your motivation came from? Because you have all these sort of influences around you that are different. How did, how did you really get to go on that path, you think? Um, well, as a kid, I was, a, like I said, I was a strange kid and had this sense of something other than what was in front of my eyes. And one, and one of the things I was fascinated with was why people did dumb stuff over and over again. I would be surrounded by people, uh, relatives and friends of my mother's and family's, 
And I would watch them doing the same thing that didn't work over and over again. And that was fascinating to me, even as a little kid, because uh, I could see that we're doing, repeating something that didn't work. So that sort of piqued my interest in psychology. Uh, being sent off to study with rabbis got my interest in, in philosophy and religious studies. So that was why I began to travel and study so I could study the religious philosophies. That introduced me into psychology, uh, particularly family dynamics. And then I became a therapist and a counselor. Um, <laughs> forgive me for that, folks. And, right. then, uh, and then from there, um, I was very interested in, well, if I study why people do the same things that don't work, who does the, the things that do work? And that got me into the study of leadership and looking at why people or some people are extraordinary, why people are exceptional, why some people get extraordinary results. And that interested, got put me into the psychology of leadership. And then in 84, I stumbled into quantum physics and started studying that and eventually wrote a dissertation on the uh, alignment of quantum physics, metaphysics and psychology. Wow. And did you end up publishing that as a book Dev, or not? No, I've written, as you know, I've written several books. Uh, some of the books contain bits of that. It's a bit it's a bit heady. <laughs> right. Well, uh, you stumbled into quantum physics. Well, if you understand quantum quantum physics, you didn't really stumble into it. But <laughs> that's well, our, our common friend, uh, we were just talking about before we went on air, uh, the great and late, the late and great Bill Clennon. Uh, that was part of that was the basis of our friendship. That's how we started because he was the only person I could talk to about quantum physics, and I was the only person he could talk. He also had a fierce knowledge and, and hunger for it. Well, it is an amazing subject, and you know we get into it here a little bit too, as we think about uh, how it affects the biology of belief and affects our DNA and all those things. So we're with you. We're with Absolutely. You, so uh, Bruce, Bruce Lipton's work is fantastic work. Yeah, uh, isn't it though? So when with with all of that, I mean, you're traveling around the world. So in those places, you were just uh, practicing that profession that you were sort of in at that time. And then you said in 84, you can't, got into this quantum physics. So then how long have you been in Canada now? I've been in Canada for uh, 30 years this year, 30 years this, this August. I arrived in 88, and uh, so I've been 30 years here. But I've been speaking for 34 years. Wow. And then uh, you planted yourself here because uh, you met somebody, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I came here. So this is one of those wild and wacky metaphysical stories i had spoken all over australia done a couple of tours and uh there's a whole interesting story around that because i almost made myself go bankrupt in the process decided to take some time off from speaking and uh found a job working up north just the way you would in canada going up and working in in the oil fields right uh, in australia went and worked up on the, in the on the mines or the gas lines and i went and worked on the gas lines so i could make good money that's what I did. And while I was up there trying to sort of recoup my financial losses, um, every day I would go out. I lived on the edge of the desert and I would go out into the desert and I would meditate. And, and I kept asking, what's next? Feeling pretty defeated and deflated by what had happened. What's next? And after a, several months, I got uh, Canada and I kept going where? And I got West Coast and I couldn't get anything else. So one day I phoned my friend who was a travel agent who had been a student of mine and said, book me a ticket. And he said, to where? And I said, to West Coast Canada. And he said, where? I said, I don't know. I don't know West Coast Canada. And he goes, well, you want to go to Vancouver, Edmonton, or Calgary? I said, I don't know. I don't know those places. You pick one. And he's like, really? Yeah, anyone. 
Do you know anybody there? Not a person, not a soul. Wow, okay, when, how long are you going for? When are you coming back? I'm not. It's one way. And that's how I came here. <laughs> wow. Couldn't well, do that today. But in 88, no, no, no. They wouldn't let you in now. They say, no. what's your plan? I don't have a plan, sir. Uh, excuse me. Exactly. You're on the first plane back to Australia. Bye-bye well, now. Thanks well, for visiting. <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, hey, that's a hoot. I'm just smiling, listening to the story. So you arrive in Vancouver. Then what? Yeah, I arrived in Vancouver. And again, wasn't entirely certain of my path. As I said, I'd been a speaker. Uh, for four years, I'd, I'd done a lot of work. I'd, I'd worked one-on-one with a lot of people, what we today would call coaching them. And uh, still wasn't certain that that was where to go. And then uh, did end up back into the, into the speaking world and started just giving some private classes and working with some individuals around their, their, their development and helping them to have a higher level of thinking and to create excellence in their life in different areas. And... Um, it's kind of grown from there uh, over the last, like I said, 30 years. But there's been a few bumps along the way, particularly in 1990. Right. And what happened in that uh, year for us? Just remind us all. Well, 1990 was uh, a banner year. <laughs> I was having more success than I'd ever had up until that point. I was on TV, radio, newspaper, magazine, interviews, articles. It was all going pretty great. Lots of speaking tours. Um, I was a pretty in demand. It was fabulous. And in 1990, I came back in, in June, was given four days off for some R&R, went up to a place called Brandywine Falls, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, I am. Just outside of Whistler. And uh, my buddy and I hiked down to see the bottom of the waterfall. And for those who don't know, as you're listening to this, it's this magnificent, majestic glacial waterfall that plummets off the edge of a cliff for 200 feet and so we hiked down the bottom and I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie and challenged my buddy to get behind the waterfall which we did uh, with a great deal of difficulty but when I came out on the other side I felt like Superman and uh, being an adrenaline junkie I challenged my buddy once again and I said let's not hike back and he's like well what do we do take the elevator <laughs> of course there is none and I said no let's free climb the face and he's like eh, I don't know if that's a good idea well, for people who know mountain climbing, you're probably aware that you need ropes and safety lines and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. For those who are familiar with the craziest sport, which is free climbing, you don't have the ropes, but you might have the right footwear, clothing, and chalk for your hands. If you really want to make it insane, then you try free climbing while soaking wet without even chalk or the right footwear, and that's what we began to do. And at yeah. 120 feet, which is approximately 12 stories, I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock and sent me hurtling down to the bottom and smashed me open like a nap on the boulders below. And I've had uh, 12 reconstructive surgeries since that date. Now, you're even lucky to be alive, sir. Absolutely. Clearly, it wasn't my time. Clearly, it wasn't. So how did that event change you? What shifted? I mean, yes, there's the physical physicality of of getting your body back together Mm -hmm. but how how do you think that changed you and what would be some lessons that the listeners could learn from that you know it's it's a great question and i'll tell you why because one of the biggest mistakes we make is thinking that a big event changes you it's everybody's perception something massive happened and then you go this must have changed you it doesn't 
invariably in my research onto this, it doesn't change people. What it does is actually embeds them. And so particularly if they're the leadership A-type personalities, which I certainly was, mm-hmm. you know, when people would ask me how I'm doing, I would say, I'm great, I'm coming back. But I wasn't. I wasn't great. You can't come back. There is no back. Life doesn't go backwards. Mm-hmm. And so it took uh, about nine months of pretending to be up and pretending to be positive uh, before I, on a particular night, I'd been out with my friends and for the first time in nine months, I actually had laughed and I kind of lost the, lost the thought that I could ever be happy or joyous again. And I laughed so hard that I'd actually ask my friends to stop making me laugh because my face hurt. Mm. And when I got home that night and opened the door and I looked across the floor, I could see in the kitchen there was garbage everywhere. There was rotting vegetables, coffee grinds, empty cans, meat wrappers. And I knew exactly who was to blame. And I marched around in a complete rage total misfit of rage looking for the culprit and when i came into the living room he was there laid on the couch relaxed like nothing was happening nothing had happened when in fact i felt like he pulled the very joy out from underneath my feet and i raised my hand because i wanted to crush him i wanted to kill him and as my hand came halfway down something in me stopped me and i didn't kill the cat it was my cat um, and instead touched Tough, that was the name of the cat, touched Tuffy, picked him up in my arms and realized that he was cold and he was dead. And I fell to my knees and began to weep and sob. And after a while, which seemed like hours, it wasn't that long, but it seemed that way. Of swollen eyes, I began to wonder, why am I crying so much for a cat that I didn't even like? And realized I was actually weeping for the loss of the life that I'd had and I had to face but that life was gone and I was at now at a turning point in my life. Mm. So the fall was in fact a pivotal moment, but change doesn't take place in a pivotal moment. It doesn't take place until there's the opportunity to go back and be the same as you were. So there's a fork in the road and that was the fork in the road for me. And I chose a different path, a more painful path because it would require me more courageous anyway, that I would have to look inside and look at what was really missing. What was I really looking for? If I wasn't going to go back, what would forward look like? And that's what it did. It challenged me at every possible level and made me look at what, what was my purpose? What was I really here for? What was it that was driving me beyond the egoic outcomes of fame or fortune or applause or significance? What was the real driver? And that was the turning point of my life and the turning point of my work. Wow. And so when, when we're, you know, we have listeners here, Dove, that are <clears throat> relating to your story, what would you say to people who have had events which are life-changing? What, what I was hearing you say is there's a certain amount of time where we might be in denial over the fact that things have changed, that it's mm-hmm. not the same. So the event itself doesn't change us, but it changes our conditions, which we either accept or we don't. So what would you really recommend or counsel or coach the listeners when we go through these things in our lives? That's a great question. Um, You know, for me, I believe, and I say this from the stage when I speak, for me, my experience is that all human beings fall. Mine was literal. Some people's it's a bankruptcy, a horrible diagnosis, a divorce, you know, something that feels traumatic and tragic. 
Um, and as I said, that, that's, that's a pivotal moment, but it's not the choice moment. And when the choice moment shows up, it's when you realize you could go back to doing it the old way, but there's probably another way. And that's the more, that's a far more courageous path because here's what I would say to you. If you're in that experience right now, maybe you're at the pivotal moment. Maybe you're at the choice moment. I don't know. And maybe you can feel it because it doesn't have to be big. You don't have to wait for it to be devastating. Only those who are a bit thick like me, you know, you need some serious pain. But it doesn't have to be that way. And so my answer, my qu- answer to your question is this. Ask yourself this qu- these two questions. What was this fall made to wake me up from? And what is this fall waking me up to? So it was waking me up from my need for significance and fame and all those things. And what was waking me up to was to discover, to dig in and look at the unresolved issues that were keeping me from my purpose. And if you were to define, well, not if, you've already done it, is what is your purpose now, Dove? What came out of that that you can articulate to the audience, which I know you can? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, there's a long version and the short version, but the, the, the short version of it is that I'm here to actually facilitate people finding their purpose and then turning that into leadership, building companies and organizations based on that. Because here, and to, to put it into a, a sentence, I believe that we go into leadership, that we go into business to reconcile our soul, to bring home the disenfranchised parts of ourselves so that we can serve others who were also disenfranchised in a similar way. And so we put ourselves into leadership and power positions because that's the best way for us to facilitate that. Hmm. Well, oddly enough, if you know it or not, but my purpose is to help others to, to live, lead and work on purpose. Mm -hmm. So we're affiliated that same way. So there's no accident that we're hanging out together today. No, with with that is, Let's now flick the switch. And I appreciate your authenticity and sharing that story and, and just really where you came from and that these are you know, pretty significant events is now you're doing the work in leadership. Mm-hmm. How does this transform into leadership? What are you teaching around leadership? I know I'm, I'm throwing out all these sort of questions, but we'll, we'll go down to the granular level. And maybe let me just back up and say, okay, what, what's missing from leadership you know as as i've interviewed a lot of leadership experts that's our expertise one of our expertise here as well mm-hmm. in your opinion what what is missing in really the leadership globally as as a as a theme as a general sort of tone what 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 do you think is missing and then we'll move into what you're teaching what you need to do sure um what's missing at the simplest possible level is authenticity at the simplest level and I say the simplest level because I don't think people understand what authenticity is. It's a, very, it's a very cool word to use now that we've been talking about for 20 plus years. But when I talk about authenticity, I'm talking about leadership that is compassionate, that has vulnerability, that is willing to be more than empathetic, but compassionate to reveal oneself and to be doing it from a place of servant rather than from a place of ego. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very important, isn't it, to move from the ego to how can I serve? And I think every leader, even the you know, 
even the rest of, best of us, we all started out in ego. We all have an ego. You don't get to come to the planet and walk through through life without having an ego. That's how it works. That's okay. Mm-hmm. It's not that you don't have an ego. One of the things that we, one of our businesses is called the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership. We teach people how to be speakers and leaders, how to lead us to be speakers and speakers to be leaders. And one of the things we say there is if you're standing on the stage for the applause, that's okay. Understand that. That's okay. All speakers, you know this, Ken, you're a speaker too. All of mm-hmm. us are second-hand rock stars. We probably mm-hmm. don't have the skills or the talent to be a rock star, but we enjoy that stage. But that cannot be the reason to get up there. Mm. It's, it's going to be there. Don't deny it. You enjoy the applause. It's wonderful. But it has to be about something bigger, and that's your purpose. And if you do that work to find your purpose, then you can push your ego out of the way. Because your ego will also, as much as, this is the other thing about ego, people don't understand, is just as much as your ego will tell you that you're the best thing since sliced bread and you're far better than Charlie, your competitor, it will also tell you you're a piece of garbage and you're not as good as your competitor. So mm. it, your ego will tear you down just as quickly as it will build you up. And so you've got to have something else at a touch point as an anchor, and that is your purpose. Listen, I may get torn down. I may get told I'm terrible. I may get the applause, but why am I doing that? And you will get rocked in that world and you'll get shaken, but that's the place you come back to. I'm here to do it for this. It's more than me. Yeah, critically important, isn't it, Dove, to be able to have that foundation? Mm-hmm. Um, I've interviewed guests in the past where, you know, society sometimes, especially, you know, I have um, young people that are in my life, meaning my son and daughter that were in their young 20s. And you, you can see where, well, I ourselves included, where your, your whole life is around how many likes I can get on Facebook on a post. And if I, if I don't get that, then my esteem or worth is attached to that lack of response. So uh, there, there's even addiction to phones now, just to, I want to get a ding or a notification that something that I matter that way. Well, I mean, I think it's worth understanding that human beings, and this again is part of our work, that human beings are, are actually addicts. And we need to understand that. We're very quick to look at the person on the street corner, and uh, you would know where this is, but the corner of Hastings Street, and mm. judge them because they've got a needle in their arm. Right. But we, we forget that we're all addicts. Every human being is set up for addiction, some for a greater level, some for a lesser level. And uh, some of our addictions are socially acceptable and some are not. And every time you get a like on Facebook or on LinkedIn or on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever it is, there's a little bit of dopamine that's released in your brain. That's an addictive process. If you've got 100 likes, that's, it's, I, I want you to think of a like as this. I just clapped my hands. Mm-hmm. Now you get 100 likes, that's a round of applause. That's a good way to not bother speaking. That's a good way to not bother really getting out there. So it becomes a way to pacify oneself. So we become very focused on this applause. And the problem with it is that it's not even intimate applause. Mm. Meaning if I do something wonderful for you, Ken, and you and I are sitting there and you go, oh, thank you so much. That was so wonderful. That impacted me. That is powerful because there's intimacy to it. But now it's 100 applause from people I'm not no intimacy with no connection with, and I get addicted to a false connection. That's the problem. And when we work with companies, that's what we're showing them, how to bond your people to you, the people inside your organization, 
and your customers and those who, who provide service to you to bond them to you in a very real level, which means intimacy. Mm. Well, let's use that as the perfect transition, Dov, to to talk about your work in leadership, where you're at. I mean, you've been in this space for a while now mm-hmm. and how that I'm sure you've had iterative nature of how you've sort of developed it over time. But what are you teaching now? What are you sharing with leaders around the world? You have your podcast, but now with your work, you're coming into my company, whatever the size is. Mm-hmm. What are you teaching me? What are the steps? What are the strategies that you are implementing so that we can go to the next level? Um, so the first thing I would address is that I ask the question, how much of your workforce is millennial? And oftentimes a company doesn't know because they don't know what that, what that actual age category is. But the oldest of the millennials, just so everybody's aware, is 38 years old. <laughs> you know, we tend to think of millennials as being kids, but the oldest of them is 38. Most of them are in leadership positions, those upper end ones. So right. they're 18 to 38 years old. And the number one thing for millennials is they want meaningful work. In order to have meaningful work, they have to work for a company that has meaning. What is meaning in a company? It is purpose, having a purpose-driven organization, which we know the research is there for the past 30 years on that purpose-driven organizations are more profitable. But here's what's most important. When, Because I'm a little bit older than uh, 38. <laughs> a couple of years, a couple of years. Yeah, couple. Uh, When I entered the workforce, people asked me what I wanted to do. And that was a 20 to 40 year question, meaning your career was going to last you 20 to 40 years. The millennial career is four years. Career, not job, career. Mm -hmm. Millennials are changing jobs every 1.2 to uh, two years. You're going to spend on training and development 1.5 1.5 to two times their annual salary. If they're going to leave you in 1.2 years, you have got no ROI. They just cost you money. So right, you have right. got to be able to bond them to you. I wrote a book called Fiercely Loyal. And that book was exactly that, how to bond your team to you, how to bond your people to you through meaningful purpose-driven organizations and how to communicate with them using vulnerability as your greatest strength. And if you're my age, you learn that vulnerability is a weakness. But in leadership today, particularly in leading millennials, it is your greatest strength. Mm -hmm. So what would be some some additional additional strategies strategies that, that, just get an echo there a bit, uh, additional strategies for this loyalty side of things? Well, the number one strategy is you can no longer treat your workforce as a workforce. You have to treat your workforce as individuals. And people go, I don't have time for that. Well, you better make time or else you're going to be out of business. So you need to find out. And I'll give you an example from the book. Let's imagine for a moment that you work in a software company in Seattle. And you're working in the software company. And suddenly, you know, everybody's done really well. The company's done well this year. And so what they've done is they've bought all of the senior management and executives season tickets to the football team, mm-hmm. the Seattle Seahawks. Now, you and I are down the, down the local bar after we've been given these season tickets, and you were talking to me, and you're telling me how great it is that the company gave you the season tickets to the Seahawks, and how excited you are, and you're actually talking to me by looking over my shoulder watching the Seahawks game in the background. Clearly, you are one happy camper. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, when you ask me, well, don't you think this is great? I go, yeah, it's okay, I guess. 
See, because I don't like football. I have no interest in football. So the message you, the, uh, the organization just sent to me is that you don't care about me. You didn't bother to find out who I am, that I'd much rather have tickets to the ballet or to the theater or to the art galleries or whatever it is that that person would like. In order to create loyalty, you have to treat people as individuals, and that means you have to be intimate with them. Great leadership requires intimacy today. And if you're not doing that intimacy with your team, so we work a lot with this C-suite, and we say is if the CFO doesn't know what the CEO's uh, personal life is like, if the CEO doesn't know what the CFO or the CMO or CIO or whoever it is, you don't know aspects of that person's life that is outside of the professional, those people won't stay with you. Mm. Well, interesting. I have to interject a short story, Dove. Sure. We have a client about just 25,000 or so employees doing some work and leadership with them. And then what happened is the VP of HR said, we're not liking the program that CRG is doing because they're linking family in with the teaching. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want anything to do with personal lives in this company. Right. (laughs) And stop. So the new vice president was a lawyer that was brought in to be the head of HR. Right. And that's just, that's just a couple of years ago that that was going on, Dub. So no wonder there's turnover, right? Oh, there's, there's going to be massive amounts of problems. And, and really, this is, this, is, this is the problem. See, so if you want the recipe for failure, it's look at what you did that made you successful and repeat it. That's a recipe for failure. Because here's the, here's the deal. We used to try to predict the future. And so we'd say, okay, well, we've done this, this worked, so we'll keep doing this because this is what worked. When we don't understand that the future is coming at you faster than you can provide for it. Mm. And so what you've got to do is the only way to stay ahead of that is to get personal with your people. And if you're doing what you've always done, that's a recipe for failure because nothing will be the same. And a company that doesn't want to mix personal and professional is a company that's living in the dark ages. This idea of work-life balance, guess what? Millennials don't care about it. You know why they don't care about it? Because they don't understand what it means. Millennials want autonomy, which means they want to work for you at 3 o'clock in the morning because that's when they work at their best, or at 10 o'clock in the morning. They don't want to show up between 8 and 5. That's your rules, not theirs. And what you've got to stop caring about is time and start caring about results and say, listen, I need this by this time. Can you do it? Yeah, sure. Do I care if you do it on the golf course? No. Do I care if you do it at three o'clock in the morning? No. Do I care that it's high quality? Yes. Do I care that you get it done by the deadline? Yes. Can you do that? Yes. Then do it however you want. Mm. Yeah, the virtual trans, what do you call it? Telecommuting, flexible workspace. Well, it's autonomy. Millennials want autonomy. They want the power to choose for themselves their own. It's not even flexi time. It's to choose for themselves how they operate. And, and you, we, as particularly as older leaders, have got to get it into our thick skulls that it doesn't matter about following rules. What matters is intimacy, connection, and autonomy based in meaningful work. That's it. Then your profits will naturally flow from that. We see it all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, Dev, when we think about a lot of the institutions, and I've 
consulted for many of them. No names need to be mentioned. And you're going into some of these companies. How do you help individuals who have never been in this space before? Authenticity, real, uh, you know, intimacy. I mean, these are words that are like foreign language to them. (laughs) How do you help these individuals even cross the chasm um, to, to even embrace this concept for them because it's just their whole work life has never had this. Um, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, obviously we have some very powerful exercises that we'll uh, walk them through. So they get a direct experience demonstration uh, from us that we can do with them, but also we show them the stats. So, you know, this is, people think this is new. It's not new. So uh, go read Jim Collins built to last. Go read that book. It was written a long time ago. Mm. It's research from the 90s. And what it will show you is that a purpose-driven organization is over 1,100% more profitable than those that are not. Number one. So you don't have to take my, my, my word for it. Go take a look and you'll see. That's number one. Then look at some of the more modern companies like Google and their research into what built the perfect team. How do you build a perfect team? And guess what it comes down to? intimacy. The most productive teams, the ones that bring in the highest revenue are the ones that have intimacy. Hmm. Now, when you define intimacy, you know, it's such a sort of touchy word that could go in different directions. Describe how that shows up practically in an organization beyond what you've said so far, Dove. You've done a great job. So thank you for that. But just, just trying to go granular for the listeners to say, well, what does that really look like? So it, Salespeople have always understood this better than executives, you know, that they know that they needed to know the birthday of their client. They needed to know the anniversary of their client. They needed to know the dog's name of their client. And that's certainly part of this. But here's the thing. I'm going to give you a simple exercise to do in your head that you can do right now. And I encourage you to to walk some of this through with your team. But just start here. I want you in your mind right now to... On one side of you, I want you to imagine a person who is, uh, you've known for three to five years, who is a fiercely loyal, intimate friend, somebody you totally trust. I'm sure you can think of somebody, Ken. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can. On the other side of you, I want you to imagine somebody you've known for about the same amount of time, three to five years, who's just an acquaintance. Mm. Okay. So on one side of you, you've got a, a trusted, loyal friend, and on the other side, you've got a uh, an acquaintance. You've known them both amount of the same amount of time. What is the difference between the two people? Really, how much you know about them. Exactly. It's intimacy. So it's reciprocal vulnerability. Now, to use my language, they know your shit and you know theirs, but nobody's using it against each other. Mm. If you want people to be loyal to you and your organization, they have got to know your humanity. And as leaders, we've been trained to believe that you don't let people see the chink in your armor. But if you don't let people see your humanity, they won't bond to you and they won't serve you. They will simply see you as the next stepping stone. But mm. people are likely to work. I mean, think about those, those two people, your intimate friend and your acquaintance. Which one's likely to do more for you? Which light one is likely to go the extra mile for you? Who are you willing to go the extra mile for? Sure. My friend would fly across the country for me. Exactly. They've done it. Mm -hmm. That's because there's mutual reciprocal vulnerability. It's 
more powerful than you could possibly imagine. So we have got to step into that and we've got to step across our own discomfort with that. Now, let me be clear, because I know that there are some leaders listening going, well, I'm just never going to do that. That's not who I am. Mm. That's because you've now taken what I said and you've turned it into a generalization. So let me be clear and give you the specifics of it. This is, I am not suggesting for a moment that you meet up with your executive board or with your C-suite members and you emotionally vomit on them. This is not about that. This is about discerningly revealing, having discernment. But as a leader, you go first. So are you willing to play with me a little bit, Ken? Uh, I am willing to trust you. You betcha. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to state something obvious about me that anybody who would ever see any picture of me would know. It's pretty obvious, and that is that I... Uh, I have a physique, I'm, I'm kind of built, I'm a, I'm a bodybuilder. That's okay. obvious about me. Your turn. Something obvious about you. Uh, that I move with purpose. That I'm, when I, I always, always have pace. When somebody looks at me, he says, Ken's going somewhere. So is that something that would be glaringly obvious just by physically looking at you? If I'm moving. Okay. If I'm glaringly obvious, would be, well, it looks like Ken's taking care of himself for his age. Okay, cool. Now, to, now I'll tell you something that's not obvious about me. When people see me, they wouldn't automatically know that I have three kids, four grandkids, the eldest of whom is 24 years old. Tell me yeah. something that's not obvious about you. Most people don't know in this space now that I grew up on a dairy farm and used to own one myself. Okay. Good. So, yeah. Okay. Now, a misconcept. So, a misconcept goes like this. Um, often, people misconceive me as being tough. I look tough, but the truth is that I've only seen one episode of This Is Us and not cried. I'm a big softie. Mm. Uh, one thing for me is a lot of people say, Ken, you don't look necessarily happy. And this, because maybe I'm not smiling with my teeth, but I'm actually quite content. Okay. So now we've got obvious, not obvious, and misconcepts. Mm -hmm. So now a fear. So what most people wouldn't know about me is that I have a fear of heights. Hmm. Uh, I actually don't have hardly any fears. I'm just trying to think of what would one that would pop up. Um, just wanting my kids, not a fear, but just that I'd want my kids to have a successful life. No, and that's that, not a fear. Be more intimate than that with me, Ken. More you intimate. Be revealing. You got to go to something that's not comfortable to say. I'm just trying to think of. Everybody's got fears. And this is why I want to do this exercise with you, because this is often what we bump into. So little well, I, well I, I appreciate it. I'm just trying to, yeah. I've done so much process work. I'm just trying to think about, well, that. Uh, my efforts at the company wouldn't um, reflect the rewards that I think are due it. Fabulous. So that could be. Okay, would that be? Fabulous. That, okay. That's great. Thank you. Right. So, you know, any number of those, you know, uh, I was having a conversation with, with uh, a friend of mine, Larry Winger. You may know he's a speaker. Yes, and, I know Larry, yeah. And, and, you know, what Larry says is his fear is irrelevance, that he'll become irrelevant. Mm. You know, and he's a very high profile speaker, but, but he uses that fear to motivate himself. And that's mm -hmm. part of how we use fear if we're smart. 
So that's a good example. So now on to the next level. And the next level is something you would tell, you wouldn't normally tell another person upon meeting them. You might feel a little bit of shame around it, a little bit of discomfort around it, not something you would normally reveal. So for me, it's that in uh, 2016, I developed a very severe anxiety disorder, and I sometimes still battle with that um, and feel quite frozen by it. Mm, okay. Um, so something that feels like a secret or you wouldn't ordinarily tell. Well, in 20, uh, even though I teach leadership and relationships, in 2010, my wife and I separated for a few months. It's never been better, but I really don't publicize that. Now that's public. So <laughs> there you go. So having gone through that exercise, do you feel the same level of connection to me as you did before it started? Do you feel it's lessened or it's gotten greater? Well, it's, uh, obviously it's gotten greater. Right. What made it greater? Well, I just asked you five questions of a 30-question process, but I asked you five questions that allowed us to become intimate. Mm. Was it uncomfortable? Yeah, a little bit, of course. But because there's a level of bond and connection to us now that wasn't there before, am I likely to trust you more? Absolutely. And we test this. Am I likely to do more for you? Yes, absolutely. The law of reciprocity has already put that in place. So this is one example of why intimacy works and how it works. Mm, mm. Well, it, you know, it's obvious as you get to... You know, in my wife and I now do some um, sort of mentoring of other couples at different times. But one of there was a book out that says, you know what, you can't have a relationship with a person if you don't spend any time with them. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's based on um, oh, Mort Fertel's book, uh, Marriage Fitness. Mm -hmm. So it's just really the same principle is that if I don't spend any time with my significant other, then how do I build connection? How do I build love? How do I build relationship with that person? You know, yeah, and I take this step further. And the step further is, so what? Lots of people spend all kinds of time together, but they're not intimate. No, they're not. They don't, they don't ever have an intimate conversation. They don't ever bother to go to those kinds of conversations. And because they don't go to those kinds of conversations, then there's no real intimacy. And because there's no real intimacy, um, they're roommates at best. Yeah, they're just hanging out together. He has right. a whole list of, I'll call it in-depth questions yeah. that he gets couples to ask each other, very uh, sort of in the same sort of genre that you are doing here with leaders, well, different because it's personal, but just mm. the same intent. Of course. Powerful. Mm. So if you're building this loyalty, now you said you had 30 questions. Wow. <laughs> now do you and, and have leaders try to ask all of those or what's your your modus operandi with that? Um, well, the, the starter is those five. And uh, because that's, you know, it demonstrates very quickly that those five work very quickly, it demonstrates quickly what will work and how it will work and allows people to, to see the value of it. Um, but it's just part of a process. There's a whole process here that we do to that. And part of that process so, you know, we're talking about intimacy here, and the, the in, but the real intimacy of leadership is intimacy with oneself. And very often we don't know ourselves well enough. And every great leader has fabulous self-knowledge. And, and self-knowledge is 
listen, I know I'm a dick, and but I'm always a dick. No, no, that's not self-knowledge. That's self-limitation. Mm. It's, it's, I know that I behaved in a way that was dickish, and mm. I need to do something about it, and I need to look at what that is, and I need the self-knowledge to explore that. So self-knowledge, so the work that we do allows the leader to really get to know themselves intimately, and part of that is through this process. You get to know yourself. You get to know how you might hide. Because we all like to hide, we do it in subtle or direct ways. But if we stop hiding, we actually let people in. And when we let people in, miraculous things happen. Oh, fair enough. I agree. Can't agree uh, enough on that, Dove. Now, Dove, we only have a few minutes left in the show. Mm-hmm. So um, two things. First of all, I'm going to ask you some closing questions. But before that, how if people want to find out about your work, First of all, what's the name of your podcast if somebody wants to subscribe and listen to that? Thank you for asking, Ken. Uh, First of all, as regards to the podcast, you can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on uh, iHeartRadio and a bunch of others. um, Wherever you find your podcast, just simply look up Dove Barron Leadership and Loyalty. Dove Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Show. Um, It's on all those. And as you said, it's the number one podcast for Fortune 500 listeners around the world. So if you go to iTunes and you put Fortune 500 as one word into the search engine, we'll come up first. Awesome, awesome. Congratulations on that. And if people want to find out more about your work and your books and all the things that you're doing, how might they do that? You can do that by going to fullmontyleadership.com. Fullmonty, like the movie, fullmontyleadership.com. You can find out all about the podcast. You can find my blog. There's over 400 articles on there. There's uh, links to the 400 podcasts. Um, there's all kinds of resources on there, including my courses that you can find out about. Uh, all kinds of access in there. I have a YouTube channel, which is Dove Baron Full Monty Leadership. You can find me on LinkedIn at my name, D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Uh, Dove Baron is on LinkedIn. And uh, Twitter at the Dove Baron. Instagram, Dove Baron Leadership, all those. I mean, really, I'm very easy to find if you can spell my name. I recently am grateful to have made the global top 30 leadership gurus and Inc. top 100 leadership speakers and the top 100 motivational speakers. So feeling pretty blessed this year. Wow. Wow. And uh, did that all without ego. I'm messing with you, Dove. (laughs) I mean, congratulations. Yeah, it's it's, uh, quite an honor. I mean, I feel very very blessed uh and it's pretty cool when it comes as a surprise well it and you just you do the work and as you said you're serving and you're helping so congratulations on that so dub with that and thank you for that is if you were to bring some closing remarks to people who really want to develop themselves self-leadership and then they also want to go to the next level in our organizations what's your closing comments that you would have for our listeners today my closing comment is simply this. Are you, are you satisfied with being good? If you're a leader, you got to that position, whether it's your own company or you work with somebody else, you got to that position because you're good. But are you satisfied with the good? Are you willing to just be good? Or do you want to be great? Or do you want to be extraordinary? Because if you look at the people you admire, the ones who are getting the extraordinary results, is because they're willing to be extraordinary. And to be extraordinary, you cannot do what everyone else does. You've got to be willing to be more courageous. You've got to be willing to do what other people won't do. And that is a path 
that I can help you on, that I can lead you on, that I can help you build a company on, finding your purpose, finding what we call your deep greatness so that you can create exceptional, extraordinary results by being an extraordinary leader who is deeply connected to their purpose and to their people. Reach out to me. You can email me privately, dov at dovbaron.com. Everybody thinks I'm mad for giving my, my email, but dov at dovbaron.com. Write to me. Tell me what you got out of this. And please, CC Ken on it. Tell him. Here's the guy puts together the shows, finds great guests for you, shares it with you. You know, let the guy know if this is his time and energy that he's doing something that's of value to you. Whether it's the show with me on or some other guest, let him know. The guy makes all the effort to do that for you, to serve you. Please let him know what you're doing with what it is that we've shared. And if you want help from me, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to be of service to you. Well, Dove, thank you for all of that. I sure appreciate it. And thanks for taking time from your extremely busy schedule to join us today. My absolute pleasure, Ken. Thank you very much for inviting me. Anything I can do to serve. Well, and uh, we, that was obvious today. Well, listeners, you've got a lot of value from Dove today. I mean, take the time to go deeper, go deeper with your relationships, to be authentic, to be real, to, to ask, use, go back to the recording and look at those five questions re- and do them with your friends and do them with others. And maybe you don't even know that with people that you've known for five or six or seven or eight years. And so be able to build that loyalty in your companies and then contact Dev if you want to go deeper with some of the work that he's doing. As always at the very end, we just thank you for listening, taking your most valuable commodity and spending it with us, which is your time. If you're like what we're doing, share it, pass it on, leave some positive comments on whatever platform that you're listening this sh- listening to this show. So thank you very much to listening to Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.